This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequency 9625 kilohertz. On the 31-meter band across southern Africa, I'm Jazarad. In the studio with the news up ahead will be Amanda Machaka, Wisani Matabula with your economics report, and Fikila Lenguati with your sports updates. Our top stories this hour on Africa Digest. We're bringing you the latest on the missing Algerian plane reported to have crashed with 116 people on board. Peace talks between the Juba government and rebels resume next week in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. Will it yield better results this time, or should we keep our fingers crossed? And hope for HIV treatment as medicine's patent pool, MPP, signs a new licensing agreement with pharmaceutical company Gilead Sciences. In sports news, Sri Lanka are 305 for the loss of five wickets on stumps on day one. Now with the news, here's Amanda Machaka. Good evening. Air Algeria has launched its emergency plan after contact was lost with one of its planes flying from Burkina Faso to Algiers across the Sahara. The plane had 110 passengers and six crew on board. An unnamed company source says the plane was not far from the Algerian frontier when the crew was asked to make a detour because of poor visibility and to prevent the risk of collision with another aircraft. It says contact was lost after the change of course. Egypt says foreign intelligence services are prime suspects in an attack last week that killed 22 soldiers near its border with the rest of Libya. Unidentified militants firing rocket-propelled grenades and machine guns attacked a checkpoint in Egypt's western desert last Saturday. The attack followed repeated Egyptian warnings of a possible spillover of violence from Libya, which is awash with weapons and gripped by unrest since its 2011 uprising. Interior Ministry spokesperson Hani Abdel Latif says the terrorist operations in Egypt are carried out by terrorist elements, missionaries trained in Afghanistan, Syria and Iraq, and recruited by foreign intelligence services. East Africa's regional trade bloc IGAD, which has been pushing for resumption of stability in South Sudan, has announced that peace talks between the Juba government and rebels will resume on the 30th of this month in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. IGAD's announcement comes shortly after the United States sent a special envoy to Juba to push for the resumption of the talks. U.S. Special Envoy to South Sudan, Donald Booth. 300,000 or more uh, in neighboring countries as refugees. 1.1 million, so about a tenth of the population internally displaced. 3.8 million, almost 4 million people, are at this point already experiencing severe food insecurity. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has named a fresh government a day after appointing a new prime minister, reshuffling some posts but maintaining key ministers. Under Rwanda's constitution, new ministers must be chosen or old ones reappointed after a new prime minister is named by the president. No clear reason has been given for the change. 
New Prime Minister Morezeki is a member of the Rwanda's second largest political party, the Social Democratic Party, a member of the ruling coalition. He is the fifth prime minister since the Rwandan genocide of 1994. And finally, BirdLife International has launched the red list of threatened bird species for the first time on behalf of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Dr. Stuart Butchard, BirdLife's head of science, says most of the threats are as a result of a loss of habitat and climate change impact. The most widely used and authoritative system for identifying which species are closest to extinction and therefore the ones that are the most urgent priorities for conservation is the IUCN Red List, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And BirdLife International is designated as what's known as the Red List Authority for all birds on the IUCN Red List. So basically we're responsible for compiling and assembling information on all 10,000 or so of the world's birds Abebeuk with some headlines at the bottom of the hour. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. A tough story. Good evening. Welcome to the show. This is Africa Digest. I'm Jazz Arad, and you're listening to Channel Africa Live from Johannesburg. Heavy sandstorms are hampering the search operation of the wreckage of the Air Algeria flight that went missing en route from Burkina Faso to Algiers and then crashed. There were 116 people on board, almost half of them French citizens. The French government says the plane disappeared from radar over northern Mali. For a perspective on the missing plane, Dash and Moodley spoke to Lyndon Burns, an aviation specialist in South Africa. We know, obviously, flying over north and, and west Africa with the Sahara, you, you one, one would expect there to be dust storms and sandstorms. That's part of life in, those, you know, in that part of the world as it is in, in the Gulf. It doesn't mean that that presents any specific uh, undue threat to safety. It just means that um, you know, in operating aircraft, people have to, to be cognizant of that and, and fly appropriately. What's the standard operating procedure? If a pilot does encounter a sandstorm or a turbulent weather, what would be the procedure then? Well, normally what would happen is he would, if he perceives the environmental conditions to be a, a threat to the safety of the aircraft, he would alter altitude, either climb or descend or skirt around the, uh, the dust storm, and then he would notify air traffic control of you know, why he's deviating from the flight plan. Pilots have been warned about rocket attacks in that area of Mali. Al-Qaeda attacks are, are, are quite prevalent, according to some. I mean, are these warnings that go out to pilots about dangerous areas to fly in? 
Um, yeah, look, uh, um, every country is responsible for issuing notices to airmen um, and, and doing so on a, you know, when and as necessary to alert them to any potential hazards or threats. And, yeah, there, there are a raft of those notices around the world. Often they prescribe, you know, restrictions on um, the altitude at which you should fly, usually a case of saying do not fly lower than a specific altitude when you're crossing a particular area. But all of these things are intelligence-driven, and I say intelligence in the sense of intelligence agency, um, intelligence agencies gathering that information, making a risk assessment, for the authorities who would then say, look, that particular airway, which is like a motorway in the sky, is open or it's closed, in the same way that they would for a road. You know, it's the, it's the National Roads Authority that says whether or not the N1 or the N2 or N3 is, you know, safe and open or portions of it are closed and whether or not people need to divert or be cautious of potholes. Aviation websites are saying that the missing aircraft is one of four MD-83s. MD-83, yeah. It's a very prevalent aircraft, very common common airplane. We used to have them flying a lot in South Africa with one time. Um, this particular one is an aircraft, I think, that first flew in 1996. And again, you know, uh, the make of aircraft is not something to be concerned with. What's to be, what, what they would have to look at is, was it being properly maintained? Had it been serviced properly? Had the engines been serviced properly? Were the pilots trained appropriately? Were they following the correct procedures? Um, you know, or was there some sort of emergency on board? So those are all the things that the investigators would look into. That's why they need the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder and why they'll need to secure the wreckage to examine it for any evidence of, uh, of what may have happened. If, if flight is supposed to be the height of our technology and engineering, how, how does a plane go missing for several hours without this actually knowing where it is? Well, uh, it's not necessarily that the plane goes missing. It's just that we don't know where it is. You know, the same with MH370. It's not that it's disappeared. It's just we're obviously looking in the wrong place. Now, an aircraft stays in touch with the ground through radio, and you could have a radio failure. It also stays in touch with uh, air traffic controllers through a transponder, which is the device that transmits a four-digit code that identifies your little blip on the radar screen as being your particular flight. Um, If you don't have that four-digit code displaying on the radar screen, then the air traffic controller doesn't know who you are, what airplane that is. He just sees a blip. So if your transponders had to fail uh, for any reason or stop transmitting, that would be another way of losing contact with the aircraft. So, you know, airplanes are machines. They're complex, sophisticated machines, but, you know, things can and do go wrong, and they're only as good and safe as the people who operate them and maintain them. How damaging are stories like this to the industry and to the psychology of the passenger who boards these planes? Sure. Look, I, I think, you know, it, one needs to keep a perspective. You look at you know, a seismic event like 9-11. Yes, there was an immediate drop-off in demand for air travel, but it bounced back. The industry is very resilient, and demand came straight back within a few months. And we've seen the size of the industry almost double since then. If you look at the trend line over every 15 years, you see that the industry doubling every 15 years, trebling in size in terms of the number of people flying, the number of goods being, the amount of goods being sent around the world by air, that's trebled in 20 years. And it's an intrinsic part of our lives. It's, you know, our whole economies depend on it. You know, it's a vital cog 
in, in contemporary life today. That was Lyndon Burns, an aviation specialist in South Africa, speaking to Dash and Moodley. On to Sudan, East Africa's regional trade bloc. EGAD, which has been pushing for resumption of stability in South Sudan, has announced that peace talks between the Juba government and rebels will resume on the 30th of this month in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. EGAD's announcement comes shortly after the United States sent a special envoy to Juba to push for the resumption of the talks. James Shimanula reports. The Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGAD, has released a statement announcing a resumption of peace talks between representatives of the Juba government and rebels. The statement said, and I quote, All the stakeholders have reiterated their commitment to the negotiation process, which is tentatively scheduled to commence on the 30th of July. The talks will end on the 10th of August, end of quote. The statement further said, and I quote again, The agenda of the next session will be to finalize and sign the cessation of hostilities, matrix, and negotiation on the details of the transitional government of national unity. End of the second quote of EGAD statement, a regional bloc in East Africa. Resumption of peace talks in the Ethiopian capital December is expected, according to African diplomats there, to be used to persuade the Juba government of President Salva Kiir and rebels led by former Vice President Riek Machar to end their eight-month fighting to pave the way for the establishment of a transitional government of national unity. The transitional government is expected to be set up before the 8th of August this year. However, it was not clear whether or not President Salva Kiir and Riek Machar would be accommodated in the transitional government. Bigger statement on resumption of South Sudan talks comes at a time when the United States, a special envoy to South Sudan, Donald Tibuth, is in the capital Juba on the express mission of pushing the two warring factions to end their hostilities. Speaking at a press conference in Ijuba, Booth decried continued fighting, which he said had displaced more than 300,000 people. 300,000 or more uh, in neighboring countries as refugees, 1.1 million, so about a tenth of the population internally displaced. 3.8 million, almost 4 million people, are at this point already experiencing severe food insecurity. Explaining the role played by the United States in helping the people of South Sudan, Booth had this to say. Working with the parties to the conflict, with other stakeholders from South Sudan, civil society, religious leaders, political parties, to try to bring about serious peace talks in Addis Ababa to put an end to the conflict so that this humanitarian situation can begin to be turned around before so many South Sudanese uh, begin to suffer starvation. I've been warning since the EGAD summit in March of this year the risk of famine. That was the United States Special Envoy to South Sudan, Donald Booth. Since December 15th last year, South Sudan has been thrown into a state of instability 
as both the government and rebels step up their battle to seize strategic places in the various parts of the country. Already the rebels claim to be controlling the oil-rich states of Upper Nile and Unity in the northern part of the country where rebel leader Riek Machar has his stronghold. But the government claims to be in full control of other eight states, including the troubled state of Jonglei, northeast of the capital Yuba. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Moving on to the Central African Republic. Rival militia from the Central African Republic yesterday signed a ceasefire agreement designed to end months of deadly fighting between Christian and Muslim groups. The mainly Muslim Seleka rebels have dropped their demand for the partition of the country into a Muslim north and a Christian south. The ceasefire was signed in Congo, Brazzaville after three days of talk hosted by President Denis Sassou mediator in these neighboring countries' crisis, which has forced about one million people to flee their home. The country has been mired in chaos since the Seleka seized power in a March 2013 coup. Further negotiations will now be held in Central African Republic to hammer out details over disarmament and mapping out the country's political future. Andre Rue, Senior Researcher, Conflict Management and Peacebuilding Division at the Institute for Security Studies, in South Africa, speaks to Jose Jodingake. The fact remains that you have to have political dialogue and engagement to develop an overarching peace process or strategy to move forward from which individual interventions that can reach down to ground level can be initiated and carried through, that can be supported by a peacekeeping mission. Remember, the UN only comes into an environment normally when there is some form of agreement or peace to keep. At the moment, they are focusing more on a stabilization, rule of law mission in the Central African Republic because people are dying, atrocities are being committed. The fact remains, though, that any military action can never resolve a problem. You have to have political level agreement, and that includes on religious issues and the divides and address a way forward. An overarching peace process is the single biggest criteria that is missing from the mix of trying to address the conflict. Therefore, you have to go forward, no matter how jaundiced a view you have of what will actually be achieved. You cannot stop having an engagement process, because that is the starting point for the bigger picture. What about the neighboring countries? You know, Chad has been accused of arming or being on the side of the Muslim Seleka rebels, and apparently some of the fighters are coming from neighboring countries like Sudan as well. Are they not to be involved in any type of process that will take place for national reconciliation? I think critical role players are countries like Chad. Chad has an influence. Chad had an influence before under the Caesar. Chad had an influence in their action or lack of action allowed Seleka to take power. So they are a powerful neighbor. They have a powerful political and security influence and interest. So they are role players that can push the actors towards more common ground. And without powerful actors like regional countries and specifically Chad, you will not get the people moving to a position where there can be a form of resolution to this. So they are critical role players. 
Although ECOS, the regional economic group, is very fragmented on this issue, there are individual countries and role players that can certainly make a difference and will be pressured further by the international community to become more involved and uh, to try and gain a resolution to the situation. That was Andre Roux, Senior Researcher, Conflict Management and Peacebuilding Division at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa, speaking to Josejo Dengake. This is, Afri- uh, this is Channel Africa. You're listening to Africa Digest. I'm Jazz Arad. Welcome to the show. Scores of Zimbabweans and Palestinians yesterday held a solidarity march over the alleged atrocities being committed in Gaza and handed over a petition to the Zimbabwean parliament to seek its assistance in helping end the conflict. Christians, Muslims and representatives from different political parties marched in Harare calling for an end to the Israeli bombing. They said the conflict was not religious but political. More for our correspondent Simon Muchemwa in Harare. We are not killers of women and children. We are killers of soldiers. We are soldiers. We will not kill women and children. These are the people who are killing women and children. Children, Masum children, children who are innocent children. Where are they people? What are the world doing? La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. Scores of people from Zimbabwe and Palestine converged in Harare on Wednesday in protest against the continued killings in Gaza. The march organized by Friends of Palestine was in solidarity with the victims in Gaza. The Zimbabwe in solidarity with Palestine chanted anti-Israel slogans before handing a petition to the Zimbabwean parliament. Palestinians and their Zimbabwean friends are disappointed by the murder of what they perceived defenseless children and women by Israel, which is taking place in full glare of the international community. Chairperson of the Zimbabwean Solidarity with Palestine, Tawanda Makore, had this to say. We are friends of Palestine. We are here to express our solidarity with the people of Palestine. You realize what is taking place there in Palestine, that Palestinian civilians, they find themselves in a war imposed on them, a senseless war, a war of greed, a war which is based, premised on wrong reasons, which is said to be on religious grounds, when in actual sense, it's a clear case of human rights violations. Deputy Ambassador of Palestine in Zimbabwe, Salem Siam, described the killings in Gaza as genocide. These people who are the friends of Palestine of Solidarity Movement in Zimbabwe, they are following what is happening in Palestine, and especially the genocide which is taking place against our Palestinian people in Gaza from the Israeli savagery military against uh, children, women, and uh, the elderly, uh, destroying schools, hospitals, electricity, and water facilities. They are actually targeting human life. This is a genocide. They must be, the, the responsible people must be 
taken to, to the Hague. Pastor Colette Williams of Eternal Freedom Ministries International said she was marching in solidarity with the children suffering in Gaza. She had this to say. I'm concerned about the killing of children. I don't believe it is of God because Jesus himself said, suffer not the little children but to come unto me. And I believe they are his creation. And I'm mourning with the mothers in Israel as we speak because it's a very painful thing to lose a child. This is not about religion at the end of the day. It's about humanity. And I believe that um, children have the, the right to live. They have a right to grow and have an education regardless of um, what uh, race or religion they are under. The protesters held placards with signs that read Free Palestine, Free Gaza, Stop the Massacre, and the UN and USA, Please Stop the Genocide. Talks to bring the truce between the Palestine authorities, Israel and the United States are underway. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa. I'm Jazarad. If you've just tuned in, welcome to the show. Still ahead to come, our economic report. Uh, that's with Wisani Matibula and our sports updates with Fikile Lingwati. Our question of the day after the news headlines. Right now, Al Jazeera reports say an Egyptian judge released his reasoning for sentences issued against three Al Jazeera journalists saying they were brought together by the devil to destabilize the country. The main evidence cited in the 57-page document obtained by Associated Press yesterday was footage produced by the journalists that included voices critical of the government and showed the turmoil in Egypt after the overthrow of Islamist President Mohamed Morsi, as well as interviews with families of those killed in the crackdown on Morsi supporters. Judge Mohamed Shahata convicted and sentenced the three journalists, Australian correspondent Peter Gresti, Egyptian-Canadian acting bureau chief Mohamed Fahmi and Egyptian producer Bahar Mohamed to seven years in jail over charges linked to aiding the Muslim Brotherhood, which the government declared a terrorist organization after the military's ouster of Morsi, a Brotherhood leader. Selina Tobong reports. The sentencing of these journalists raised a storm of international denunciations. Rights groups called the trial a sham that sends a chilling message to the press. The defendants and Al Jazeera denied the charges, saying they were being prosecuted merely for doing their jobs. The three were convicted for allegedly spreading false information, faking reports to show that the country was on the verge of a civil war, and for aiding the Brotherhood's goal in portraying Egypt as a failed state.
Mohammed received an additional three years for his possession of a spent bullet. Three other foreign reporters received a 10-year sentence in absentia. Twelve other co-defendants were sentenced to between seven and ten years, some of them also in absentia. Under Egyptian law, now that the judge has released his reasoning, the defendants can appeal the verdict before the Court of Cassation, the highest court of appeal. The judge in his reasoning stated that the defendants who worked for Al Jazeera's English language service broadcast their material through a TV station that works in the service of a banned terrorist organization, this referring to the Brotherhood. Reports further say that the document, however, did not provide no clear link between the Brotherhood and the network, only saying that some members of the group were also operating out of Qatar. Judge Shihata rejected defense lawyers' arguments that evidence put forward by state security investigators was insufficient and based on anonymous sources. Shihata said he found the evidence compelling and found no false allegations or contradictory statements in investigators' testimonies. With the release of the judge's reasoning, the defendants have one month to present their appeal and it is up to the cassation court to accept it or not. The court does not rule on the validity of evidence, however, only on whether the judge observed the law and proper procedure in his verdict. The court can order a retrial or uphold the sentence. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ndobong. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Now time for the news headlines. Here's Amanda Machaka. Thanks, Shaza. Good evening. Algeria has launched its emergency plan after contact was lost with one of its planes flying from Burkina Faso to Algiers across the Sahara. Egypt says foreign intelligence services are prime suspects in an attack last week that killed 22 soldiers near its border with the rest of Libya. And East Africa's regional trade bloc, IGAD, which has been pushing for resumption of stability in South Sudan, has announced that peace talks between the Juba government and rebels will resume on the 30th of this month in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. Those are news headlines. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Channel Africa, live from Johannesburg. This is Africa Digest. I'm Jazz Arad. Rival, this is the question of the day. Rival militia from the Central African Republic have signed a ceasefire agreement designed to end months of fighting between Christian and Muslim groups. The mainly Muslim Seleka rebels say they have dropped their demand for the partition of the country. The agreement was signed in neighboring Congo. Our question today is, do you think this ceasefire will last? Email us, info at channelafrica.org. 
That's right. Do you think the ceasefire will last? And we're talking about the rival militia from the Central African Republic where they've signed a ceasefire agreement to end months of fighting between Christian and Muslim groups. The Muslim Seleka rebels have dropped their demand for the partition of the country. The agreement was signed in neighboring Congo, Brazzaville, yesterday, today. The question is, do you think the ceasefire will last? Email us, info at channelafrica.org or SMS plus 27823325905. Or you can get hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Also still up ahead, we'll do this day in history in about 10 minutes from now. <coughs> I beg your pardon. South African President Jacob Zuma says the establishment of the BRICS Blocks New Development Bank is a forward step for South Africa and the continent, as well as the other members. He says the bank is a groundbreaking initiative by the developing world, the first of its kind. He was replying to a debate on his budget speech in Parliament. The BRICS Bank Africa Regional Centre will be established concurrently with the headquarters in Shanghai in the People's Republic of China. And Tantla Maklangu reports. BRICS, comprising of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, announced the establishment of the new development bank with its headquarters to be in Shanghai earlier this month. The leaders of the five BRICS countries signed a deal to create a new $100 billion development bank and emergency reserve fund. The capital for the bank will be split equally among the five participating countries. The bank will have a headquarters in Shanghai, China, and the first president for the bank will come from India. Replying to a debate on his budget speech in Parliament, President Jacob Zuma expressed disappointment about the focus by some members on where the money for South Africa's share in the bank establishment was going to come from. I thought that members would look at the establishment of the bank differently than looking at where shall we get the money from. Because this is a groundbreaking initiative by the developing world, the first of its kind. A different bank from the ones you know, like IMF or World Bank. A bank that is established specifically to look at the development of the developing world. A bank that will have different way of doing things. You know that in the banks that we have, that are big. If you ask for help, you end up in more difficulties. That has been the history of the countries, particularly developing countries. I would have thought that we would have seen this as part of the developing countries beginning to stand on their own and do their own things, to finance their own operations rather than to depend on the banks that have existed for a long time. And I thought that our political majority would have said, yes, at last, we are now standing on our own. And I think that's how we must look at it as a country. The bank will complement existing sources of financing to cater for the ever-increasing development needs in areas of energy, rail and road, and other economic infrastructure. President Zuma says all African heads of state are excited about the bank. All heads of states in the African continent are excited by this, who have an experience of the dealings with the banks that have existed up to now. And they see this as 
an opportunity that we can develop Africa without too many strings attached that have been there with us in our history. We should be excited by this. We should take it as a development. We should take it as an advance. It's not a backward movement. It's a forward movement. He says it's important to note that the benefits of participating in the new development bank by far outweighs the cost of establishing the bank itself. Initially, South Africa's contribution is in the form of paid in capital of 150 million US dollars. This amount is part of the scheduled of installments agreed to among all members. The bank will have authorized capital of 100 billion US dollars with 50 billion US dollars subscribed. All countries will contribute equal capital to the bank. It is important to note that the benefits of participating in the new development bank by far outweigh the cost of establishing the bank itself. President Zuma told the members of parliament that South Africa will continue to lead its international relations program premised on building a better Africa and a more just world and to promote mutually beneficial relations with various countries and regions of the world. He says they'll continue to building a stronger and more effective African Union so that it can drive the African agenda. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. The family of the late Cameron Dalziel, a South African helicopter pilot who was on board the ill-fated Malaysian's MH17 airliner that crashed in Ukraine last week, says international media reports that there was activity on his credit card after the incident are untrue. Dalziel was among the 298 people who perished when the plane was allegedly shot down over Ukraine. Dalziel, who was living in Malaysia, was on his way home from a meeting in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. The repatriation of some 200 bodies from the site of the incident is currently underway. Minoshni Pillay reports. Emotional and gripping scenes were broadcast around the world as the first of some 200 bodies arrived in the Netherlands. They'd finally been recovered from the crash site in eastern Ukraine. The world watched as coffins were loaded onto hearses and driven under police escort to a military base at Hilversum, south of Amsterdam. Here, forensic experts from Britain's Interpol would begin the painstaking and long process of identifying the remains. And for one young family in Amschlanga, north of Durban, they watched these scenes with particular heartbreak. Their father and husband, Cameron Deal, was among those in the coffins. But the chance that he is not among the recovered bodies remains. The family have not yet received any word in this regard from authorities in the Netherlands yet. Cameron's brother Campbell says the images of the coffins arriving were hard to watch. Eventually, uh, the respect and the dignity was given. You know, I actually got respect and dignity for human again because, you know, with the respect of my brother, as well as everybody else, uh, hopefully my brother was, was in one of those coffins, but we don't know. The compassion that people showed yesterday you know, was very moving, especially with all the people um, on the side of the road. You know, my mum was moved to tears, and you know, it, was, it, was, it was heartfelt. 
Meanwhile, Campbell Deal has disputed international media reports that his late brother's wife, Rainey, was forced to cancel Cameron's credit cards after she noticed activity on them after the incident. Deal says his sister-in-law was advised to cancel the credit cards simply as a precautionary measure. The day after, you know, she was advised to cancel the credit cards because, you know, there were reports that said the rebels on the ground were going through people's belongings through some cases, not specifically my brother's credit cards, but there were reports to say that guys might get hold of the credit cards and they might try to use them. I know Rainy hasn't said anything, but I know she did stop the cards the day after it happened as it was a precautionary measure. Deal says the consistent messages of love and support from family, friends and the general public is helping them get through the tough time. You know, we just go through the process. No one can ever prepare for this. I just want to say thank you again for the well wishes and the support from everybody. You know, it feels good to be South African. And as well for all those other people, um, you know, the families, we share their grief. It's not a nice thing to go through, but having the support of everybody, um, it helps. It helps, helps us get it through. The Deal family is planning a memorial for the late Cameron Deal in Durban next week. Minoshni Pale, Durban. This is Channel Africa. AIDS activists and civil society organizations in South Africa have welcomed an announcement by the country's health minister, Dr. Aaron Motswaleri, to treat HIV-positive patients with antiretrovirals at an earlier stage. Starting January next year, Motswaleri made the announcement yesterday during his budget vote speech in Parliament. To help us understand the implications of this, here's John Ashmore, Deputy Head of Mission for the Medical Humanitarian Organization, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF in South Africa. You know, we're all very happy about the news. It's good news. Yeah, I mean, this is coming into line with uh, WHO recommendations for South Africa, again, leading the way, I think, in that regard, but also coming into line with you know other countries such as Zimbabwe, Malawi, Mozambique, who've also moved to the new WHO guidelines for treating HIV. Now, you mentioned that the new treatment regime will be in line with guidelines introduced by the World Health Organization. In a nutshell, what exactly do these guidelines recommend? So, I mean, they recommend in terms of the new CD4 threshold of 500. So that's basically when people are a little bit less sick than previously. They can now be initiated on ARV when their immune system is less compromised. So, you know, you don't have people hopefully coming in at death's door kind of thing or in order to receive their treatment. But certainly there's also focus. Another interesting aspect of the guidelines is the focus on viral load detection, which looks at how much virus is in people's blood. And that's a very accurate measure of seeing whether ARVs are actually working and whether people are staying on their treatment. You know, viral load tests are available in South Africa and we just need to be using them to make sure that people are adhering to their treatment, staying on their treatment and keeping healthy. But how realistic is such a policy shift for a country like South Africa whose health system is plagued by many challenges? Well, I think, you know, certainly there's been some criticism from a number of voices in South Africa that, you know, we've now extended or the Department of Health has extended eligibility for ARVs to, you know, people who are less sick. But at the same time, we're still not finding everyone who was eligible previously for ARVs. So not everyone is 
on ARVs who should be on ARVs. And that's partly a health systems challenge in terms of, you know, people often tend to come in quite late to clinics and not receive the primary health care that they need in terms of regular checkups to stop them becoming ill in the first place, which is something that uh, Mozzoletti has addressed himself, obviously, in some of his speeches. But I think there's a number of health systems issues to address, including stockouts of life-saving HIV medication in terms of getting enough people tested for HIV and keeping them in care through proper counseling models where People are, you know, counseled on how to stay on their medication and not just, you know, stop taking it when they feel a bit better. So I think a lot of this speaks to, you know, the health system challenges in South Africa, but the Department of Health does seem committed to addressing these issues. It's just a matter of seeing the action in some of these areas in which they've made uh, quite a few promises. So it's certainly not going to be a huge burden to move to the... CD4-500 threshold because, as I said, most people are coming in before, I mean, coming in after the CD4 has dropped below that level. Let's now talk about the work that you do. How instrumental has MSF's role been in ensuring that more patients are put on treatment? Basically, MSF was involved with the Western Cape Department of Health initially in South Africa to roll out ARVs during the period where the government denied that patients, you know, should have access to these ARVs. But since then, you know, there's been a turnaround from the government strategy and and MSF now works also in other provinces and, you know, in other countries as well. I think the latest is that MSF is currently treating 210,000 patients in 23 countries and different contexts for HIV. So they're putting a lot of people on treatment themselves, but they're also, you know, experimenting, you know, to see what the next thing is for getting people on treatment and retaining them in care and getting them tested for HIV. For example, we have a project in KwaZulu-Natal where we already have switched to the CD4-500 threshold for initiating patients on treatment in partnership with the KZN Department of Health. They're definitely doing quite a lot in the region and in the country, South Africa. Yep, that was John Ashmore, Deputy Head of Mission for Doctors Without Borders in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Mapari. Time for our economic report. Here is Wisani Matabula. Thank Jazar. Egypt still companies have filed a petition against the rebar and wire rod imports from China, Turkey and Ukraine. This is the latest move in a quest to protect the fledgling industry from, from low-priced imports. Egyptian steel and other major steelmakers have submitted a request for the government to reintroduce anti-dumping duties on imports of rebar and wire rod used in the construction industry. This comes at a critical time for Egypt steel industry, which is still recovering from political turmoil. The Cape Chamber of Commerce says the trademark protection of rooibos tea bodes well for the country. South Africa has been given geographic indicator status following an economic partnership agreement between southern African countries and the European Union. Head of the Chamber, Janine Maybeck. It uh, affords protection to South African producers of rooibos, the farmers, um, the people adding value to rooibos. It uh, is protection in the form that no one else in any other country 
or region within South Africa can produce a product and call it rooibos, in the same way a champagne can only be produced in the champagne region of France. IRS, a principal supplier of share market and wealth management systems in Australia, Asia, Canada, New Zealand and the UK and South Africa has created a Twitter Twitter tool that allows anyone following its data account to request share price information from it using tweets alone at and no cost. Users can request market data from the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, Australian Stock Exchange, New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Managing Director of IRIS, Ashley Mendel-Woods, explains how the system works. Our main sort of focus is to supply uh, trading and uh, market data uh, technology as well as wealth management solutions to um, stockbrokers, banks uh, and, and the insurance companies and um, um, and we traditionally have provided um, you know desktop uh, type systems that sit, sit on your computer and um, and then more you know more recently moving into into things like iPad um, and and mobile devices uh, as, as things have uh, have obviously developed. Shares of Facebook hit a record high today. This after a surge in mobile advertising revenue helped the world's biggest social network trans-analyst expectations for quarterly profit and revenue. The company's shares rose 7.6% to a high of $76.74 in early trading on the Nasdaq. At that price, Facebook's market value is just short of $200 billion, putting the company in position to overtake IBM Corporation as the fourth largest U.S. listed technology company. The top three are Apple, Google, and Microsoft. Still about U.S. companies, General Motors reported a much lower second quarter profit due to numerous calls and the expected cost of $400 million for a compensation fund for those killed or injured by a defective ignition switch. GM also reiterated that it expected a moderately improved operating profit this year. The company says its future recall costs will be slightly higher than historic rates. Financial indicators, the dollar at 10.53 South African rands at 8.7 Botswana Pulas and 6.08 Zambian Kwachas. It's also trading at 0.58 to the British pound and 0.73 to the euro. Moving on now to commodities. Gold, $1,297. Platinum, $1,473 a fine ounce. Brent crude oil, $108.15 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Our sports report, yes, for Kila Linguati with the latest. In a sports update this hour, we're starting off with cricket news. Mahila Jayawadini hit a classy unbeaten century to help Sri Lanka close on 305 for 5 on the first day of the second test against South Africa in Colombo. 
In a chanceless six hours at the crease, Jayawadin finished on 140 not out, made off 225 balls, including 1-6 and 16-4s to give Sri Lanka a solid start in their bid to level the two-match series. South Africa picked up two wickets in the final session, dismissing captain Angelo Matthews for 63 and Kituwaram Vitanej for 13. The South African bowlers toiled to onto a res- unresponsive betting pitch at the Sinhalese Sports Club as Sri Lanka added 97 runs in the afternoon session. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe cricket chairman Peter Chingoka has stepped down from his post after two decades at the helm. The 60-year-old Chingoka tendered his resignation at the association's extraordinary general board meeting. He was the first black person to assume the role, having taken over from Dale Elman Brown in 1992, just before Zimbabwe attained test status. During his reign, Zimbabwe cricket moved from relative stability to a series of difficulties with player strikes over non-payment of dues. ZC Managing Director Wilfred Mogondiwa confirmed Chingoka's resignation with a formal announcement to come later. And on to Commonwealth news, the Chief Executive Officer of the Commonwealth Games Federation, Mike Hooper, has been responding to questions about the exclusion of the Welsh boxer Fred Evans from the Games. Evans Olympic silver medalist and favourite for the gold in the welterweight division is being refused accreditation after checks with the British Home Office and Commonwealth Games Accreditation Decision Board. Cooper says background checks are carried out before accreditation is granted. First and foremost, the CGF itself doesn't get directly involved in undertaking secure background and security checks. All of us in this room to receive our accreditation cards were subjected to those and if we failed it, Uh, we would not be sitting in this room with an accreditation card, myself included. Uh, The reality is for all major events, a lot of you were at London 2012, the exact same process applied and the authorities, the appropriate authorities, the Home Office, police, etc., undertake the background checks and processes. There's a Games Accreditation Decision Board who reviews all these cases and those policy parameters are set through that body, decisions are taken, and it's made very clear, including Commonwealth Games Wales, for example, all Commonwealth Games associations signed up and agreed that should anyone fail uh, an accredita- a, a background check, then they would not get an accreditation. And the Hangoba came off the bench to help the South African men's under-20 national team to a one-all draw against Burkina Faso in an international friendly match played on Wednesday at the Stadio du Four out in Ouagadougou. Ngobo took just five minutes on the pitch after replacing Skumbuzo Mazubugo to equalize for South Africa in the 58th minute. The home side had taken the lead six minutes from the break after defender Obrima Posa was adjudged to have handled inside the box. John Emmanuel Zongo coolly slotted from the penalty spot, sending South Africa's goalkeeper Jethrin Bar the wrong way. The squad traveled to Bamako for a date with Mali on Saturday. The remaining two matches will be against Senegal in Dakar and Ivory Coast in Abidjan. And finally, with golf news. Wind gusts of up to 60 km per hour forced the suspension of the second round of the Vodacom Origins of Golf presented by Samsung at the Arabella Golf Club. Trevor Fisher Jr. is leading. Michael Flismas reports.
Wind gusts of up to 60 kilometers per hour forced the suspension of the second round of the Vodacom Origins of Golf presented by Samsung at the Arabella Golf Club today. Trevor Fisher Jr. was leading on seven under par through nine holes of his second round when the siren sounded at 11.25 a.m. With the wind still at its worst, play was called off for the day at three o'clock. Andrew Kerr-Lewis was one of those happy to be back in the clubhouse. You make up your mind when you're standing over the ball what you want to hit and then yeah, the gusts come along, either you stop in time or halfway through your, your swing it comes and then you really are buggered. Michael Flismas, Arabella. That's the sport news this hour. This is Africa Digest. Okay, recapping our top stories. Peace talks between the Juba government and rebels resume next week in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. Hope for HIV treatment as Medicines Patent Pool MPP sign a new licensing agreement with pharmaceutical company Gilead Sciences. And in sports news, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka are 3 of 5 for the loss of 5 wickets on day 1. Wrapping up Africa Digest today from myself, Chancellor Rao, producer Lebo Monomaholo, technical producer... Melo Mokunya, Mokwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. Any comments, email at info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Africa Digest, Channel Africa, Box 91313, Auckland Park, Johannesburg, or SMS plus 27823325905. Through to the top of the hour, South African group freshly ground with Buttercup. You're with Channel Africa. While I was walking one day And she was such a pretty little buttercup I saw her walking one day I said, hey, I'm such a pretty little buttercup I'd like to take you away But oh such a pretty little buttercup I don't believe that you would stay on my way Don't. 
like I said, that Friday night around. 